0: Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, this is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem, and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And ladies and gentlemen, it is Health Literacy Month. Now I do apologize in advance in that uh, we were on a little hiatus here in the program, just a lot of things going on, but I felt it was really important to get this show in before the month closed out. And so yes, October is health literacy month. For more than 20 years, this has been observed and it was first proposed by Helen Osborne in 1999. And just some quick background with her. She is, by training, an occupational therapist. She is currently the president of Health Literacy Consulting. She is also the producer and host of Health Literacy Out Loud. It is a podcast interview series. And she's the founder of this worldwide initiative, Health Literacy Month. She's authored several books, including the award-winning Health Literacy from A to Z, Practical Ways to Communicate Your Health Message, which actually was recently updated in 2018. So just want to give a shout out to Helen Osborne. And ladies and gentlemen, if there is really no more pertinent time to really get into what health literacy is and how it impacts our health and well-being throughout all of our lives. Right. So that's what we're going to get into. But before we get into that, I'm going to air it out because that's what we do here on Health in Harlem. We talk about some misconceptions, right? Try to set the record straight, and that's what I'm going to do. And this is going to be partially also an update on what is going on with the COVID-19 vaccines in children. So you all know that two days ago, the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, that's V-R-B-P-A-C, This is essentially the Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee. And they recommended the use of the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccines in children 5 through 11 years of age. It was a blowout, ladies and gentlemen. 17 to 0. 17 yays, that is, to 0 nays. And only one abstention in that vote. Now, this should come as no real surprise. That is, if you have been listening to Health in Harlem in previous weeks, we had Dr. Kristen Oliver. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics and environmental medicine and public health at Mount Sinai. And she's also a vaccine expert. And we pretty much talked about this being inevitable, right? Where this these vaccines would be approved for use in children five to 11 years of age. And that is because the data that has been coming out for weeks now has shown that the vaccines can be quite effective in preventing uh, not only children from coming down with covid-19 right being infected with it but also when it comes to having severe manifestations of that illness severe as in winding up in a hospital severe as in in the worst case scenario dying from this disease the vaccine has shown been shown to be very effective and on the other hand regarding safety with this vaccine in children five to 11 years of age it has been deemed to be very 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 safe safe to the point where if you compare the benefits of the back vaccine now we're talking benefits in terms of preventing infection with COVID 19 preventing hospitalization and death and other complications we've talked about things like long hauler syndrome which has been identified in children, right? That have had complications from this illness. When we talk about the benefits in those terms versus the risks, and there are risks, right? With the vaccines, those risks include children developing anaphylaxis or severe allergic reactions, even milder allergic reactions to the vaccine. There are more complex immune mediated adverse effects Probably the most talked about in the media up to this point has been myocarditis and pericarditis. So that's inflammation of the heart muscle itself, myocarditis and or the pericardium or the sac that contains the heart. Right. That is pericarditis inflammation of that sac. Those have been some some of the most talked about complications when we talk about these complex immune, typically immune mediated complications from the vaccine and one thing that has been noted even from the presentation of this committee recently was that these are very rare side effects and so when we compare the benefits as we said keeping children out of the hospital, keeping children from suffering severe and debilitating disease, the benefits significantly they far outweigh the risks and that is why this recommendation was made by this committee. Okay. And now, now here's the part where I have to air it out, right? Because there are many individuals out there. Um, even some physicians, uh, some individuals with training and expertise in early childhood development and health and well-being. there are individuals that feel otherwise, right? When we look at the, rate of complications in children. One of the arguments that have been, that has been put forth is that, well, children don't really develop, right? Complications from this at high rates, uh, such as adults, right? We know in adults and especially older adults, more likely to have complications. Um, You know, there were some estimates of 20% of individuals, and we're talking unvaccinated individuals, (laughs) Um, Ladies and gentlemen, things definitely change even in adult populations with the vaccine. But when we talk about uh, the complications in adults, we were talking about rates as high as 20 percent of individuals, right, having to be hospitalized that were infected with SARS-CoV-2. And we talked about a subset of those patients having more severe complications and disability and death even but we've seen that in much smaller rates in children. So there has been this argument put forth that, well, if children don't really develop severe disease from covid-19, why should we protect them from it with vaccinations? Why should they maybe take that risk uh, with the vaccines, which really is a very, very small risk um, when when we really look into it? But there are other things that we need to consider when making this decision. I mean, really just looking at what we talk about in terms of rates versus actual children, right? And if we look at what has happened in this country most recently with the Delta variant, we've had more than 23,000 hospitalizations from COVID up to this point um, in this country. And we've seen a, a big increase over the summer in the number of children admitted to hospitals with complications from COVID-19. Over 600 children ages 18 and under have died from this disease, right? These are hard numbers. We're not just talking rates. There are 600 families out there that have lost children to this virus. And when we talk about vaccination and preventing this, right? Stopping this in its tracks, right? We don't, have to have another 600 children succumb to this disease and when i think about 600 children you know you're talking about whole schools of children under the age of 18 dying from this illness now i mean depending on your community right whole schools worth of children dying from SARS-CoV-2 and this can be prevented to put it in another light right One of the more common causes of death amongst children in this country, we have accidents, trauma being the number one cause, unfortunately. So after accidents, cancer is the second leading cause of death in children ages 1 to 14. So it is estimated that there will be close to 1,200 children under the age of 15 that are expected to die from cancer in 2021. So. Let's imagine if we had a vaccine to prevent half of those deaths, right? 600 saved lives. Would we do it? And it had some, let's say, some of the same risks that we talk about when we talk about vaccines, the risks of allergic reactions, uh, some other complex risks um, that can lead to things like myocarditis. And these are small risks, though. When we look at the data and we look at the. Thousands of children that have been vaccinated, thousands of children that are in these trials, we're talking very low numbers of these types of complications versus the benefits. Right. The children that are prevented from getting sick and winding up in the hospital in the worst case scenario, succumbing to this illness. I mean, even if we talk about children developing some of the same complications that could arise with the vaccine. And actually developing these complications at higher rates than what we see with the vaccine. So, for instance, myocarditis. Oh, we know. We know there are children that develop myocarditis after coming down with SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19. Um, and those children right, can wind up in the hospital. They can wind up in the intensive care unit. When we talk about things like multi, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, right, this systemic inflammatory process that can lead to organ dysfunction and failure. That is happening to some children out there with COVID-19. And so again, ladies and gentlemen, the airing it out, well, I'm going to air it out, right? As far as the misconception in that this disease, this virus, SARS-CoV-2 is quote unquote harmless in children, right? Or that the rates of Complications are so low that, you you know, it's negligible. It's not negligible. There are children, as we said, 600 children that are not here today since the start of this pandemic. Well, let's prevent, let's stop another 600 from not being with their families, not growing, right, to become the next researchers, right, that can prevent the next pandemic for us. How can we stop that? Well, we can stop it, right? We can stop that in its tracks By considering vaccinating our children, by doing it, by getting our children vaccinated. And if you need any more coercion, if you need any more uh, recommendations in that regard, right, we've had that 17 to 0 vote, right? 17 yeses, no individuals voting to not recommend the vaccine in children 5 to 11 years of age um, on this committee, But let's go to, you know, we talk about getting recommendations, right? And I know a lot of parents out there definitely uh, doing their homework regarding everything that's going on with COVID. And some of that homework includes asking their pediatricians for advice, right? Um, I mean, that's where I go for advice for my children and making sure that we are doing our best in raising healthy daughters. Well, this is coming from the top. Dr. Lee Savio Beers, he is the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and he actually just wrote an op ed in The New York Times really saying that, yes, you want to vaccinate your children against covid and explains why he believes so. And he talks about exactly what we just discussed, the hospitalizations of children, the even the deaths of children, right, children having real complications, from this illness directly related to the virus. And then he goes on to talk about some of the other things that don't get mentioned as much, right? In that this pandemic has really exacerbated an already existing mental health crisis in this country amongst children, right? Over 140,000 American children that have lost a caregiver to COVID-19. So we have children, um, you know, dealing with everything from adjustment disorder to depression from this illness. We've also seen an outbreak of eating disorders, suicidal thoughts amongst children. When we talk about this pandemic, right? But yes, it's a worldwide emergency dealing with this virus and the fallout from it, the illness that has resulted from it. But when we talk about the indirect effects, right, this is why the American Academy of Pediatrics declared a national state of emergency regarding children's mental health. Right. Because of the after effects of covid-19, the pandemic itself, the stress that it has caused in parents, in children, in other care providers, the disruptions in their education, right? Keeping children out of school, keeping children from interacting and playing with one another, right? We know that there are real benefits from that, both physical activity, them getting out there, being active, getting exercise, learning new skills, making social connections. All of these things can be protective against all of the mental health problems that we just sort of mentioned and many more. And when we talk about their future growth and development, right, this is where it becomes real critical. We got to get control of this virus, and so if that said, I mean you've heard it before in this program. <laughs> if you have not gotten a message up to this point, we are advocates of um, vaccination, period. Um, but even in children, right? When we talk about the benefits of the vaccine in these age groups, um, up to this point, the data is very encouraging. At this point, and yeah, we don't know the the full long term effects, but from the history of vaccinations in this country and around the world, considering the thousands of children that have been vaccinated up to this point, the data that is on hand, right? It is as safe as it can be right now. Um, And also we know it is as effective as it, I mean, as it, I mean, hopefully it'll become more effective, right? And even safer uh, in the future. But right now the data is pretty solid in that children stand very likely to benefit from this intervention um and it far outweighs as far as those benefits it far outweighs the risks at this point right and so that's why it's something that i think we need to make happen for our children and so that's it ladies and gentlemen i aired it out man i hope i i hope i aired it out i mean yes some of that that stuff is true the rates are low um, amongst children but we're talking about children very real children that are being harmed directly and indirectly by this virus and so that's why i had to get that out there and so i'm going to move on to our main topic for this program and talking about health literacy because it's really a seamless conversation Uh, from what we just discussed as far as the vaccine learning how to how to weigh risks and benefits of any medical intervention I mean, even not just medical, but we're talking alternative therapies, right? When we talk about the risk benefit analysis. Well, part of this goes back to health literacy. And if we were just to break it down, what it is, I think that's really where we should just start. It's really the ability to find, to understand, to use information and services to inform health related decisions and actions. Right. And this is uh when we talk about personal health literacy, I mean, if we were to really break it down from a day to day perspective, what we're talking about are individuals understanding prescriptions, right? Their un- ability to understand their doctor's instructions and recommendations. <laughs> Let's say with the vaccines, right? Um, the ability to understand right, the benefits of the vaccine versus the risks and why this is something that is recommended by their physician, their ability to navigate the complex healthcare system that we rely on each and every day to keep us healthy and happy in our lives. This is what health literacy is. And studies consistently show, and this is clearly on worldwide display with the COVID crisis, right? Studies show that people have trouble accessing, reading, understanding and acting on health information. According to the Center for Healthcare Strategies, 36% of adults in the United States have low health literacy. And really, why should we care, right? Because I know there's people out there that's listening to this program and they're like, I'm literate. What do you mean I don't understand, right, the uh, instructions given me by my doctor, right? I I followed up the, the way that they told me or I do sort of what I'm told to do. I know the medications that I take. Well, let's think about how this affects you how it affects your family members or anyone in your community. You experience greater healthcare use and costs compared to those with proficient health literacy. In fact, in 2007, the medical errors, increased rates of illness and disability, loss of wages and the accumulated public health effects that result from low health literacy cost the U.S. economy $236 billion each year. And that's number. That, that number is probably way higher right now, right? Um, that was back in 2007. But when we talk about the rise in healthcare costs in this country, that number is probably has skyrocketed up to this point. Um, now, now, yeah, there are, are some out there, as I said, that don't think this doesn't apply to them because they know how to access, read, and use health information and resources. So I'm out. Why am I listening to this program? Well, we we really almost understand that it's not just about information when it comes to health literacy. It's also how we use and interact with the healthcare system. And this is a major part of health literacy. In other words, you can be highly educated. You can be economically well off. You could even be a healthcare professional and in some ways still have low health literacy. And to put it very simply, People make health choices every day, right? Um, regarding what we eat, where to eat, what we might do as far as physical activity is concerned, right? Are we going to do yoga? Are we going to go walking, running, dancing? Whether or not to smoke cigarettes. How much am I going to drink tonight, right? As far as alcohol consumption. Well, we, we make all of these decisions, right? And, and in order to stay healthy and make decisions that will improve our health, We must know how to read, right? Do things like read nutrition labels and facts, nutrition facts. We must understand the directions regarding medicines that might be prescribed to us. We must be able to find the nearest healthcare facility and know what to bring, right, on that visit to the emergency room, right? How can I help facilitate the care that I'm going to receive or optimize the care um, that I will receive? How can I help the care team? help me how will i interact with and report symptoms and information to health professionals right finally after all is said all is said and done right can i understand the insurance forms and other paperwork and even pay the medical bills so i'm not losing money or spending money inappropriately or getting the best right bang for my buck um we talk about dealing with our Very, very complex healthcare system and insurance system in this country, and so that's what this program is about, and that's why it's so important for all of us. Right? There are even some things regarding health literacy that me, Maurice Donovan Selby, as a physician, that I can do better, and so that's what this program is about tonight, ladies and gentlemen, and really just trying to improve our literacy in this country because it is Health Literacy Month. And again, going back, this was founded by Helen Osborne and is now brought to you by the Institute for Healthcare Advancement. And there have been some updates. Healthy People 2030, which is the United States Department of Health and Human Services data driven initiative to improve health and well-being in this country over the next decade. They've made some changes right? Some tweaks to the definition of health literacy. And they broke it down into a couple of large categories, personal health literacy and organizational health literacy. Now, personal health literacy refers to what we mentioned at the beginning of the program, right? The ability to find, understand, and use information and services to inform health-related decisions. And this includes everything from understanding prescriptions to knowing which medications right, you're taking, the names of those medications, what each medication is being used for, and how long you're supposed to be taking that medication. So all of those little details, even when it comes to chronic illnesses, what chronic illnesses you might have, how they are being treated, and what are some complications right that could result from that when it's not uh, being treated appropriately or if a person has a complication from that illness. right? So that's all personal health literacy. And then we have organizational health literacy. And this is the degree to which institutions and organizations enable individuals to access, understand and use information in order to get and benefit from the services and to make informed decisions about the care that they receive in such institutions. And so this includes making it easy and right to Access and schedule appointments, making sure that translation services are available for individuals that, right, English might not be their preferred or primary language, ensuring patient understanding of everything from, as we said, prescriptions to discharge instructions. If you're leaving the hospital, right, you are hospitalized for some reason, discharge instructions become very important because, right, it includes everything from what you were diagnosed with to how it's being treated to what to do to prevent you from having to come back to the hospital and be admitted again right for the same reason it also includes providing right this is organizational health literacy it includes providing information resources at a reading level and in a format that patients can understand so that is organizational health literacy and this has just been evolving i mean There's other categories, including digital health literacy. So according to the World Health Organization, digital health literacy refers to the ability to seek, find and understand. And most importantly, right, how to appraise or sort of categorize and weigh health information from electronic sources. The next part of this is to use that information, that knowledge or information to address or solve a particular health problem. And so that includes everything from accessing your electronic health and medical records to communicating with your healthcare professional or team, right? And being able to discern reliable health information online and let's say in the news media, in the general media, right? That's all digital health literacy. And then finally, there's numeracy, and this is essentially a I can refer to it as a quantitative literacy. So basically, referring right to individuals being able to understand and use numbers and mathematical and problem-solving skills that are essential to really navigating this increasingly data-driven, number-oriented world that we live in. So that's everything from understanding and nutrition facts, right? Caloric intake or how many calories you're bringing in. To how many calories you are burning or calorie expenditure with different activity levels, interpreting blood sugar levels. So if you do your finger prick at home, if you're a diabetic and you're checking your sugar, what do those numbers mean? Right? What is normal? What's abnormal for that person? What to do about it if it is high, right? That's numeracy from a health literacy standpoint. Being able to work with these numbers to make decisions about our care. What's a high blood pressure? What's a low blood pressure? When do I need to seek medical attention for my blood pressure or my sugar? Or when my heart rate is out of control, right? We got all of these uh, electronic devices, wearables that we like to wear. Well, if it's alarming saying my heart rate is 150 beats per minute and I'm chilling listening to the Health in Harlem podcast, it should not be 150 beats per minute <laughs> unless you were running a marathon or you were working out or something. But if you're sitting there Minding your business or not exerting yourself in any way, your heart rate should not be 150 beats per minute, right? So that's numeracy from a health literacy standpoint, being able to work with these numbers and make decisions about our health and well being. And so there are real challenges. And that's why these categories were created so that these challenges can be met um, in those different ways because health literacy is not just, as we said, this single entity, but it comprises all of these different levels that need to be addressed, both individually and at the institutional level. And so let's just further put this into perspective. When we talk about health literacy in the United States, an estimated 90 million Americans have low health literacy. And when we talk about those at highest risk from having low health literacy that includes individuals in lower socioeconomic status, individuals with lower educational levels, those who are elderly and especially those with low English proficiency. So individuals that do not um, either do not speak English primarily um, or that just have other preferred languages or. Um, and then also we have those who are receiving publicly financed health coverage or other socioeconomic assistance, right? This is, again, just going back to the challenges regarding socioeconomic status when we talk about health literacy. And so that's that's where we really need to look at this um, closer because the burden of low health literacy does not lie only on the individual, right? But as we said, healthcare organizations must also be health literate to reduce the demands that are placed on these individuals. And so what happens? What, what is the fallout from all of this? Well, I'll tell you what the fallout is, right? The impact of low health literacy. What is that impact? Well, it leads to things like medication errors, low rates of treatment compliance due to poor communication, right? So individuals not following through with the plan. You went to a healthcare provider, for a problem, maybe your blood pressure was a little high. Maybe your values for your kidney function were a little elevated and the plan was to keep a very close eye on that number or on that blood pressure, right? We weren't even going to start medicine at that time. We just said, hey, let's get some things together, right? We need to maybe lose a few pounds, maybe some shedding some pounds, um, maybe some changing some eating habits. We can actually get better control of this blood pressure. Maybe we could make some changes and improve your kidney function, or maybe we just need you to see a nephrologist to follow up with a kidney doctor, right? These instructions that can be very, very beneficial in preventing further complications from any of these problems, right? Whether it's hypertension, which we know is the silent killer in this country, right? We don't know it's a problem until we're having heart attacks, strokes, kidney damage, um, that's what we're talking about here, low rates of treatment compliance due to this poor communication between providers and patients. We're going to talk about that because it's partially on us as providers, but also there are things that we can do as consumers of healthcare, as patients, things that we can do to improve this. But we're talking about additional impacts, reduced use of preventive services and unnecessary emergency room visits. And I'm talking about preventive services like a colonoscopy, right? Uh, Something that can literally nip disease in the bud, right? When we talk about snipping out those polyps, we've talked about it on this program, Health in Harlem. We focus on health literacy, believe it or not. For those of you that have listened uh, to this program week in, week out, well, you're probably more literate than a lot of people because you went and got that colonoscopy, right? That preventive service. But we're talking about real fallout from this um, in indiv- individuals not getting those preventive services visiting the emergency department unnecessarily ineffective management of chronic conditions and diseases due to inadequate self-care skills and even just not having the follow-up and the expert advice and care that is required for some of these These illnesses, longer hospital stays and increased hospital readmissions, poor responsiveness to public health emergencies and even higher mortality. And I want to go back to that, the poor responsiveness to public health emergencies, because that's what I said at the beginning of the program. This was right. when we talk about health literacy and the problems that we're having in that regard. We can look at it on the world stage right now and what's happening uh, with COVID-19, even right here in the United States some of the challenges that we're facing in dealing with this crisis. Um, A lot of it, when we boil it all down, deals with, right, it comes down to health literacy. And so that's why this is such an important show. And just to hammer it home, right, compared to those with proficient health literacy, adults with low health literacy experience, four times higher health costs. And so just like financial literacy, right, another big area in which we want to be uh, sort of proficient in dealing with our money, right? And uh, creating savings accounts and making investments that are going to benefit us in the long term, not squandering opportunities or money um, right in the short term. Well, guess what? Um, Health literacy hits your pocket pretty hard as well, or low health literacy. So four times higher health costs for those with low health literacy, 6% more hospital visits, And on average, two day, right up to two days longer when it comes to hospital stays, they're in the hospital for two additional days and compare comparison to adults with higher or proficient health literacy. And so that's the problem. That's the scope of the problem, ladies and gentlemen. And again, right. For those that are listening that, well, I don't really have problems following my doctor's advice or understanding why I'm taking medications or when my next follow-up appointment is or how to schedule that next follow-up appointment. You're good on all of that stuff, but I bet you know someone in your family, a close friend, a relative of a close friend, somebody in your circle, if it's not you, somebody in your circle is dealing with the challenges that we've talked about thus far. And so that is why you need to be, we all need to be cognizant of this And also when it comes to getting what we need, right, when we talk about organizational health literacy, well, the only way to get that is to advocate for it, (laughs) right? Um, You know, it wasn't always the case where translation services were available in hospitals uh, for all those that needed it. It was not always the case that discharge instructions and educational materials talking about health and well-being or disease management, they weren't always put in a form or a way or in a format that all people, right, should be able to understand. These are things that had to be changed because it was made aware to the organization by people just like you that are listening to this program, right? Sometimes we have to advocate and push for these things in order for them to become a reality. And so if you sit on a community board for your local hospital, if you are on a community board, right, for your city council member or for your community board, whatever it is, whatever board you sit on or however you're involved in a hospital, you're just a volunteer. Well, these are the things that we need to make sure that our institutions are doing when it comes to health literacy, especially when we talk about, as we said, organizational health literacy. We need to make sure that these institutions are meeting our needs as patients, right? We need to make sure that they are making it easy to access and schedule appointments, making sure that right translation services are available, ensuring that we can communicate easily with our providers, right? And that we can even access them, right, with all the technology available, Right, telemedicine that that should be the standard now, <laughs> pretty much no matter where you go for your care. Right, a telemedicine option, especially as we continue to deal with um, crises like the COVID nineteen pandemic. Well, guess what? A highly functional and quality organization that is right at the forefront of organizational health literacy. Well, they need to have. Um, those options available. And if they're not available, that's when we need to get out there, right? And make our needs known, right? We need to demand that uh, from the institutions that we go to for our healthcare. And so with that said, we're going to transition back to the individual, right? We're gonna talk about more personal health literacy. And when it comes to personal health literacy, there are certain skills that are, I hate this, but almost required, Right. When we talk about having good health literacy and one needs basic math skills. And this is in order to measure medicine, to understand nutrition labels, to calculate blood sugar levels or to even understand those levels, keeping track of things like insurance copayments and deductibles. All of these require basic math skills. There's also literacy skills And literacy is your ability to understand information, whether it is in written spoken form or um, another form, a person with low literacy skills, right? They might not be able to understand the instructions on a prescription label. They might might not be able to understand home care instructions for a new diagnosis, right? That was printed out for them by their healthcare provider. People with low literacy skills also might have trouble understanding what their doctor is telling them in their face, right? Um, They don't know, right? They can't really make sense of what is being told to them. They might not even know what questions to ask, right? And still, one thing that I want to make note of is that healthcare information can be so complex, right? And this is why regardless of your literacy level, whether you have the best literacy skills, whether you have the best math skills, (laughs) Right, you still might have trouble understanding all of the information that is being given to you by a healthcare provider. You still might have trouble understanding the nutrition facts um, on a a food purchase that you're about to make. Right, it, it, at all educational and socioeconomic levels, there can be challenges, and being aware of those possible challenges, right, can help us in arming ourselves and preparing to overcome those challenges or those barriers to health literacy. Finally, we need a basic health knowledge, and this includes understanding how our body works, the causes of diseases, right, such as cancer, um, various forms of cancer. When we talk about with this whole crisis with COVID-19, right, understanding that, hey, right, viruses, right, viruses versus bacteria versus fungi versus Um, other microorganisms, how they cause disease, why do they do it, how do they spread, right, these are all critical questions that can um, really be impacted when we talk about a person's health literacy, right, how can they understand these things, and especially when we look at what's happening around us in terms of stopping the spread of this illness, right, we can begin to see how this is such a challenge, even amongst, right, the higher echelons of society, if we will, you know, going back to the whole episode with, um, I'm not even going to mention a name, but that well-known female rapper that was talking about the orchitis or swollen testicles of a friend of a relative of hers, right? Uh, We go back to that, right? That's health literacy. That is health literacy right there. Um, Or at least in that instance, Um, Evidence of a low, probably low health literacy when it comes to vaccines, vaccinations, side effects of vaccines, right? And I would even advocate that that was an opportunity, right, to learn um, when we talk about that episode. And so factors that affect health literacy, individuals that might have lower levels, as we said, older individuals, racial and ethnic minorities, individuals that did not finish high school people with low income levels, non-native English speakers, and in general, people that are in poor health to begin with. Um, and, uh, and factors that affects a person's personal health literacy, education, language, their cultural background, access to resources, including technology, right? Not everybody has access to a smartphone. Um, and then we saw this, this episode play out, right? This um, unfortunate circumstance where there were individuals, right? We had these COVID-19 vaccines when they first came out and you were able to go online and book your appointment, but you know, it was just failed. And this was an organization, if you ask me, an organizational failure Um, in that not everybody's online. Not everybody has a smartphone. Not everyone could go and make an appointment online to go and get a COVID-19 shot, right? When these shots first became available. And so that is organizational, a low organizational health literacy. And we saw that at the governmental level, right? Uh, Health agencies that were responsible for getting these shots out. Now, fortunately, they learned from that um, rather quickly and right, changed course to make it uh, more available so that individuals without internet access could go and sign up or find a way, call, for instance, to schedule an appointment for that shot. But those are the things that we need to be on the lookout for when it comes to Uh, personal health literacy, even organizational health literacy. And with that said, I'm going to transition now into the prescriptive part of our program, because I think we've made the case, sort of laid it out as far as the challenges regarding health literacy. And really one of the most important purposes of health literacy month is to really, one, make everybody aware of this, but also Give individuals the tools they need to improve health literacy Um, at the personal level, at the organizational level. I mean, that's why the United States Department of Health and Human Services via Healthy People 2030, that's why they added those additional components to health literacy, especially that organizational component is because they want to make change. They want to challenge organizations out there and give them goals to meet in order to improve Health literacy in this country and around the world. But I'm gonna focus on you, ladies and gentlemen, for the last 15 minutes of this program. You and myself, actually, too, <laughs> because there's definitely things that I've learned, right, from this and in, in preparing for this program. And it's really how to improve your health literacy. At its most basic level, health literacy, right, as we said, involves our ability to understand information about our body and about our health and well being. And this is information usually comes from a doctor or other healthcare provider. And it may be presented in a number of ways, right? Whether it's spoken, whether it's written, pictures, graphics, visual images, as audio, video, or a slideshow, online or through some sort of application, right? An app on your phone or tablet device. It's important that our healthcare providers that they speak to us in ways that we understand, that we can understand and use this information, this information regarding our health and well-being, right? They must acknowledge cultural differences. They must be prepared to speak in a language, right, that might not be their own preferred language as a medical provider, but they need to find a way to be able to make translation services available or be able to communicate adequately with a patient, right? You right before them. And I say all of that to say in that part of this, when it comes to health literacy is us being our own health advocates. And now I'm going to just flash back to Miss Gloria Thomas, who was the founder of this program, Health in Harlem, a mentor of mine, a great friend. She was like a surrogate mother. One of the things that she used to say Week in, week out on this program was that we all need to be our own healthcare advocate. And by healthcare advocate, right, she meant we had to, right, in some ways participate in our care in order to get the care that we needed, in order to get the information that we needed to be healthy. And so part of that is going to be doing things like asking questions. Right. And and so basically if you don't understand what your doctor, what your physician assistant, what your nurse practitioner, whoever's taking care of you, whether it's your primary visit, primary care visit, whether it is an emergency room visit, wherever you are, whatever healthcare professional you're dealing with, right, if there's something that you don't understand with what you're being told, what you're being told to do or regarding an intervention of some sorts, whether it's a medication or some procedure that's being offered, ask questions. Studies show that many patients right out there, and I've been in this position too, right, are embarrassed to ask questions when they're confused by what their physician um, or healthcare provider is saying. Don't be embarrassed. We cannot afford to be embarrassed. And this partially goes, right, this is a part of health literacy, right, Being empowered to ask questions. This can improve our health literacy because what we don't know going into that encounter, we can learn from our provider. Um, And and sometimes we have to force our provider to put it in terms that we understand. Right. So your doctor is telling you you're having a myocardial infarction. What? What are you talking about, doc? Oh, you're having a heart attack. Okay, I mean, I, I hate bringing up that. That's a dramatic sort of example. Um, but there are patients out there. They don't know. Right. Um, there's times where I've had individuals in the emergency department that I'm taking care of. Right. They came back uh, for some reason. I say, well, what happened? You were hospitalized recently. Yeah. What happened during that visit? Oh, I had some some chest pain. Well, what did they find out? What was the cause of the chest pain? No, nah, they just said, um, yeah, I don't know. They just said, you know, it just was chest pain. No, I look back and the person had a heart attack <laughs> and they probably told them they had a myocardial infarction instead of blunt terms you're having a heart attack, right? That changes a lot of things. Um, That changes how you're treated. That changes down the line therapies, right? To prevent that from happening again. Uh, If you got a stent from a heart attack, a stent to open up your coronary arteries, your arteries supplying your heart. Well, guess what? You probably need to be on an antiplatelet medication, aspirin and something called Plavix or there's other uh, variations of these medications, but you need something to keep that stent from closing up again and causing another heart attack, right? That's health literacy. If you don't go home with that understanding after a diagnosis like that, you are at risk, right? And that's a, this is how low health literacy can lead to problems. So we have to be empowered. We have to ask questions. If they didn't break it down for us, we must force, right? Get our providers to put it in terms that we understand, whether it is changing the language, using less medical jargon or big terms maybe we need them to draw a picture or provide us with a graphic or some other visual image maybe we need a video or slideshow all of that stuff is available Um, (laughs) there are very good youtube links that can teach you about diabetes management right Um, going forward and how to look what to look for regarding your feet right if you're a diabetic um, changes that are concerning when you need to see a, a provider all of that stuff is out there and we need to force our providers to provide that information for us to and be empowered to ask those questions. Uh, also, one thing that can help is repeating what your doctor tells you in your own words. So your doctor might give you a lot of information in a very short period. They're using big terms there. And some of them, right, might even be trying to break things down for you in their way, trying to make this more palatable, more understandable for you. But if it's not working, <laughs> right, It will be clearly evident when you try to repeat that or tell them what is going on in your own words. So that is something I think a very it's a very good exercise um, to get used to um, just essentially repeating. And you can start by just saying, let me make sure that I understand what you're saying, doc. Right. Uh, You said and then you lay it out as far as your understanding and your provider. Right. Either they're going (laughs) to agree with you. They might disagree and say, no, 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 you got me wrong. I'm going to explain it again. Um, Or they might even take it to the next level. Being that you got that much, they might give you some more understanding uh, from there. But repeating what your doctor told you in your own words. Another thing that you can do, and it's really especially those individuals that have uh, those challenges when it comes to um, actual literacy, right? Difficulty with reading, reading comprehension, or understanding verbal language. We have those individuals with, um, difficulty managing numbers, right? Well, it might be very wise, and this is why I said this is a show for all of us because we all have a friend, or family member, or coworker, someone that might have difficulty in this regard. Um, ask somebody to come with you, right? Bring a friend or a loved one with you to your appointment, and this is common. I mean, many times I have the right, a husband and wife pair, and the husband he might not get everything, but he says, "Hey, look." Ask my wife. My wife knows, <laughs> right? She knows. That's the the from a liter- health literacy standpoint. My wife knows everything. She'll tell you what's going on, what needs to happen, who my doctor is, what medications I'm on, why I take them. Um, now, do I advocate being right the one that understands this for yourself as a patient? Yes. But if you have difficulty, have a friend or a family member that can help you with this information, that can help you manage this information, that can help you communicate this information when you are with your healthcare provider. Another thing that can be very useful is asking if there is a patient navigator. Now this goes back to organizational health literacy where many organizations, um, especially larger healthcare institutions, larger hospitals, they will have patient navigators available. And basically, this is someone that is trained to help you navigate the healthcare system and coordinate your care. Whether it is setting up follow-up appointments, whether it is getting further understanding or more manageable resources as far as discharge instructions, um, this person can help you navigate the healthcare system. They can also help you access health services. They can assess your treatment options, get a referral, find clinical trials, fill out forms, etc. Um, basically patient navigators can be very, very helpful in all regards, right? When we talk about all levels of health literacy and healthcare, another thing is keeping a running list of questions for your doctor or a patient navigator. Um, and this is one thing that I I really advocate is just writing these things down because in the middle of the visit, right? Um, Especially if something changed, you got a new diagnosis or there's a new treatment approach, whatever it may be. It is hard to think of questions up front, right, in the moment. And sometimes things come to us later or as we're having conversations with other people, talking about it with family, whatever. Right. Those questions, write them down and have those um, at the ready so that you can ask at the next opportunity. Maybe it'll be the next telemedicine visit. Right. That's what we have. Telemedicine. That's why it's such a godsend. Um, I would argue that this is a blessing in disguise when it comes to the COVID ban- pandemic because it accelerated so, uh, the use of telemedicine. Um, and so individuals can talk with their primary. You can, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's some there's limitations right on times, but for the most part, you can access your primary almost anywhere, theoretically at any time, right? And so this is why it's so valuable. and having those questions on hand developing them, as you're going on, jotting them down or keeping them in a place um, so you can ask at the next opportunity is very useful, especially when we talk about the challenges with health literacy. Um, if you do not speak English or the same language as your provider, asking for a translator right? or bringing one with you, again, bringing that family member or friend that can help you during that visit. Also, you can ask if there are handouts or other materials that you can use to help you understand And the last thing, and this is where (laughs) you know I'm going to get passionate about this, ladies and gentlemen, right? Because this is something that we've been talking about on Health in Harlem week in, week out. And a major, major problem when it comes to health literacy, right? As we said, this is not only the ability to access information, but to understand and use the information. To make decisions that are in our best interest in terms of our health and well-being, each and every day on this planet, and so we cannot believe everything that we read on the internet, everything that we see on television or hear on television. We cannot believe everything that is presented to us, um, especially on social media uh, and and all of these other outlets. Right, there are just thousands and thousands of websites out there with health and medical information on them. Unfortunately, there is a good chunk of them that have misinformation, even disinformation on them. and I mean, it's a fact that some of them just exist solely to spread bad information, right? And unfortunately, we have to <laughs> we have to sift through all of this stuff to find the information that is going to give us the best results and live in the healthiest life possible. And so we can't believe everything that we read on the internet, right? And this is where I think as far as our personal health literacies is probably one of the greatest challenges because one thing that I'm very proud of, um, and this is what my interactions with patients, this is with family members, is that when we talk about people being advocates for their own health and trying their best, really, in all sincerity, trying their best to arm themselves with information that will allow them to make decisions for themselves that will likely be in their best interest, right? People are trying to find the information. They're going out and seeking the information. I am a person that is a one, right, uh, 1 million percent advocate of individuals doing their quote-unquote research um, when it comes to, let's say, the COVID-19 vaccines, right? Um, But we need to understand that part of that research, right, we need to make sure we are Looking at sources that we are taking in information that is true, that is evidence based, right? Scientifically sound, right? That'll, and also that'll, that's that's actually true, right? Because there's tons of false information out there. And so we really need to be careful with the information that we are consuming out there, that we are engaging with. Um, And I would, I always say, right, be wary of what. Your boy on Facebook says, right? Because as much as your boy might have your best interests at heart, where that information is coming from, from that individual, we need to ask questions, right? Where did you find that out? Where did you hear that? It caused the testicles to swell. Well, not, I mean, there are many things that can cause your testicles to swell. I don't think it was the vaccine because that's not, <laughs> you know, from the data that's out there, the real reliable data, that is not a complication at this point not a complication from COVID-19 vaccines, right? So being aware of bad information that is out there and safeguarding yourselves from it. And we're going to talk about that um, in later episodes, ladies and gentlemen. We have in the past, and we're going to continue to talk about that and give you tips on how to sift through all of this stuff. But that is it, ladies and gentlemen. I just want to thank you all for tuning into Health in Harlem and for being your own health advocates. And... Ladies and gentlemen, I just um, ask as we go forward, right, that you share this with anybody that will listen, friends, family, foes. (laughs) I mean, who knows when's the best outcome, health outcomes for their foes, but whoever will listen, they could use this information. I'm pretty sure there's people out there that you know that could benefit from this. I want to thank my colleagues, the Health in Harlem team, Shout out to the rest of the team out there. I also want to thank Angela Harden and Tina Dixon at WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem and the rest of the WHCR family out there. And I finally want to thank you, the listening audience, for tuning into this program. As always, ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of us.